0: my god why have you forsaken why have you forsaken Forsaken? Why have you forsaken?
1: My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning, Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no answer. Have you ever found yourself in a situation like this, calling out to God, crying out to God, very much expressing your emotional state to God, even getting angry with God because of the situation that you find yourself in? Is it even okay? To yell at God. Is it even okay to express feelings uh, of anger and disdain toward the one whom you know sits enthroned on high? Today we will walk through Psalm 22. Now if you have been around church in any way, shape, or form you know that this psalm is deeply connected to the crucifixion of Christ. And probably most any time you've ever heard this psalm preached in church or taught in church, it the pastor or teacher immediately went to the crucifixion of Christ. Why? Because upon the cross... Right before Jesus gives up his spirit, in Matthew 27, verse 46, we are told that Jesus, from the cross, looked up to the sky and said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it is with that question that many people have had lots of questions. It has even bothered the faith of some that Jesus would speak these words from the cross. Take comfort in knowing that God had not actually forsaken Jesus upon the cross. The Father had not abandoned the Son. Jesus was doing something to bring comfort to His disciples. Before... They added chapters and verses to our scriptures. The Psalms were simply known by the first line of each psalm. So the title of Psalm 22 in Jesus' day was, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it's interesting that as Jesus speaks these words from the cross, it it throws the crowd below him into confusion. Like, what is he saying? What is he getting at? Why, Why is he talking about this? In the midst of all their confusion, Jesus speaks these words so that his disciples can find comfort in the words that were written by David a thousand years before. A thousand years before the Christ came and took on flesh, you're going to see David is going to talk about the cross and the crucifixion and Jesus having his His hands pierced by the nails. Guys, crucifixion is not even going to be invented for another 500 years by the Persians. And it's not going to be until 500 years later that the Romans perfect the crucifixion and how they would kill people. So a thousand years before, as David is writing this psalm, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, He foretells us the death of the Christ. So when Jesus speaks those words to his disciples, they can then go and look and see this was all part of God's plan from a thousand years before. Now that's where we usually focus on Psalm 22. But that is not where we are going to spend our time Focusing this morning because I think what often gets looked about Psalm 22, we overlook this because we so want to jump to the crucifixion and prove our point about the crucifixion and how God worked has worked the crucifixion. We we miss that this is something David was actually going through, and there are some beautiful, hard, hard truths and realities in the scripture, but things that we need to see that will help us immensely as we walk through this life. If we realize that that David was not just sitting at his desk one day and decided, hmm, I I think I'm going to write a psalm about tragedy and sorrow and and agony and just kind of see how it turns out. That David is actually writing this psalm out of an experience that he is walking through in his own personal life, and then that God uses even now, 3,000 years later, for his glory and for our good. David, in the midst of strain, in the midst of Suffering says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. David is in distress. This is not a light and momentary affliction. This is something that has been going on in David's life. It is a prolonged experience of suffering. A prolonged experience of trial. And David does something in the next three verses that we would all do well to remember and to incorporate into our lives anytime time trials and suffering come upon us. In the midst of our crying out to God, we must take what we know to be true about God so that we can ground our emotional state on something more firm and more sure than our emotions. David, in verses 3, 4, and 5, says, Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel, In you our fathers trusted, they trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. David reminds himself of three things. That even though life is seemingly falling apart all around him, that that it is crashing and burning and there is no help in sight, he reminds himself, number one, first and foremost, God, you are holy. God, you are good, you are righteous, you are love. For holiness is God's most defining attribute. The only thing that God is described in triplicate in all of Scripture is that he is holy, holy, holy. So David is saying that whatever is happening in this situation, God, you are right in this situation. Secondly, he reminds himself, our fathers trusted in you and you delivered them. Most likely, he would be thinking back to the Exodus. That having been under the oppression of Pharaoh and the Egyptians for hundreds of years, God had delivered his people because they trusted in him. David is reminding himself that he also needs to trust in God in this situation. And lastly, he says, "To you they cried and were rescued, and you they trusted and were not put to shame." Though they may though he may be experiencing temporary shame, ultimately They were not put to shame. And so David recalls on their experience that they were not ultimately put to shame, that he alone would not be put to shame in this as well. So David, in his deepest moments of despair, takes his emotional state and he grounds it, lays it upon a very firm foundation a theological framework that he knows to be true. And we, if if we are going to survive the ups and downs of life, the, the, the despair, the suffering, and the trials of life, we would do well to follow this pattern that David sets, that as we express our frustration at God, we then take our emotions and we ground them in the truth of who God is and what is true about us as his Covenant people. Feelings of despair and hopelessness, not grounded in reality and hope, will only lead us further into despair and hopelessness. We must take all of our emotional despair, anxiety, fear, worry, And place them upon truth. Feelings not grounded in true reality can ruin us. Have you ever been there to where you you allowed your emotions just to run rampant? To run without anything to box them in? Maybe you've been counseling a friend or a family member at some point in life and and they are just emotionally, spiraling out of control. And and you're trying to, to say truth to them. You're trying to speak truth to them. You're trying to help them and comfort them. But they cannot grasp anything that you are saying and they just continue to spiral downward. And maybe you've been in that place where you've just continued to spiral downward looking for anything that you could set your foot upon to find a firm footing. In order to find that grounding, that firm ground, we must set our emotional despair upon the truth of who God is. There was once a famous Confederate general named Stonewall Jackson. People were constantly amazed at his bravery. They were constantly amazed at his fearlessness. And one day, one of his captains came to him and says, how can you be so fearless in the midst of all of this bloodshed and war and the craziness of war and and watching everything go around and all of this chaos and calamity. How can you be so calm and be so fearless? And Stonewall Jackson looked at that man and he said, has God not appointed the day of my death? Therefore, what do I have to That was a man who had taken all of the chaos around him and grounded the most difficult of situations upon a theological truth. And it allowed him to not get caught up into the emotional despair that everyone else around him was feeling because he knew that God had already appointed the day of his death before he was born. So he could live in a fearless manner before those he was called to lead. Now maybe you like this idea of uh, of grounding our emotional despair in a theological framework to to help us climb out of this. Now let me say to you, this is a good and right and first step any time we are suffering emotionally. And for a church like ours and churches like ours that, that, that have a, a high value uh, on the truth. I mean, our, our church is named Truth. In case you didn't know that, you're in a church named Truth today. The word aletheia in Greek means truth. We have a high value of God's Word. One of the ways that we can err when we talk to people and counsel people is that we can just hit them in the eyes with the truth. And then try to remove the emotional context from what they are going through. It is, it is not a wise idea to say, all right, I've given you this nice, neat theological framework and box. Now let's remove all the emotional, all the emotions from this. For that is a grave error as well, not to acknowledge the experience that someone is going through. And and what I find so comforting in this psalm, and I pray that you would find comforting in this psalm this morning, is that though David, in this state of emotional despair, verses 1 and 2, grounds it in a great theological framework, I want you to see by grounding it in his relationship with God and in this theological framework, it does not dissipate his emotional state. It actually seems to intensify his emotional state and intensify his going after God, his complaining to God, and his lamenting before God. In verses 6, or starting in verse 6, it says, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me, they make mouths at me, they wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. David continues his lament. He continues to explain to God as if God didn't know this is how the people are viewing me. The king that you have put in place, I am seen as a worm. I am being scorned. I am despised. I am being mocked. People are saying things about me. They're wagging their heads at me. They are mocking me and my trust in you. And what may be surprising, and you may be really afraid to go there, but David is not in this. He puts the blame squarely on God. Look at what he says. Would you be so bold to speak to God in this way? Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth. And from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near and there is none to help. What does David say? God, this is all your fault. You did this to me. Can you get that real with God? Can you get that emotional and angry at God? Or are you afraid to approach your father in that way? David goes after God hard. He goes after God strong. God's a big boy. He can take it. But David makes a stunning confession in verse 11. There is none. This is a hard thing for us to confess, isn't it? That when we get into places that we can't get ourselves out of, that our friends can't get us out of, that our parents can't get us out of, it's often the place that God shows up And makes himself more real to us than at any other time in our lives. When there is no one else to help. And there will be times in your life that God will take you to places. Not because he's punishing you. But because he is refining you. That he will take you into the valley of the shadow of death. Until you come to the realization That you are fully and completely and solely dependent upon Him in this life. And there is no one else who can help but God alone. There is nothing He can do about His situation. His self-sufficiency and independence has been destroyed. And oh, how we love our self-sufficiency and our independence, don't we? And sometimes, because of our incredible love for those things, God shows us just how insufficient we are and how dependent upon we are for Him in our very breath. In verse 12, David continues his lament. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a pot and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. I went one line too far. David says in 12 through 18, I am being assaulted. I am being poured out. I am exhausted. I can't pick myself up. In kindness, my enemies have encircled me. They've pierced me. I'm emaciated. They stare at me. They gloat over me. I am naked before them. If you found yourself in a situation like this today... Would this strengthen your faith or would it shipwreck your faith? See, so often, because we've been sold a Christianity that's an up and to the right Christianity. We've been sold a, a Christianity that's a repairman's gospel. Jesus and God, they, they just they just exist to they just exist to fix all your problems. Because we don't talk about the hard passages and the hard texts that God sometimes takes us through the valley of the shadow of death. We get surprised by it. And so many people have their faith shipwrecked because they are not prepared to deal with the storms of life. Jesus, in Matthew 7, at the close of the Sermon on the Mount, He talks about building your house upon the sand or upon the rock. And he says, well, when the storms came, the man who built his house upon the sand, it crashed. The man who built his house upon the rock, his house survived. But what no one ever talks about is that the storm hit both houses. Just because you build your life upon the rock of Jesus does not mean the storm of life will not hit. The Bible says it rains on the righteous and the unrighteous. When trouble and calamity comes into our life, of course we should look and we should ask, well, are there any, you know, is there some sin going on in my life? Have I caused this? But if we can find our heart free from sin and our, and our life free from sin before we just run and go Hey God, I was being a good little boy today. I was being a good little girl. I was doing asking uh, you. I was doing everything you asked me to do. Might we not benefit from the perspective in going? Uh oh, is this a test? Is this a trial? Is God taking me down this road? And usually, that's a question we are afraid to ask. Because we only expect good in form of the American dream. Let's just be honest. We as human beings, we equate goodness of God with my life going smooth, my life going better, getting that raise at work, actually getting a job when I graduate from college, right? For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to give you, right? Whenever you graduate from college, if you have Christian friends, they're all going to give you that card. All right? And as I've told you before, just realize that the verses that come right after that is God sending his people off into the exile for 70 years. So guess what? You're getting sent off into the workforce of exile for 70 years. (laughs) Have at it. All that work and money to go to school. That's where you are being don't be surprised when the storms of life hit having pleaded his cause to god having laid out in great detail everything that he's going to going through having blamed god for his situation david continues in verse 19 But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. These three verses could be best summed up with one word, importunity. IMPORTUNITY, INCESSANT BEGGING TO THE POINT OF ANNOYANCE. Now, when you think about incessant begging to the point of annoyance, where does your mind immediately go? And all the parents are laughing, right? (laughs) Because all the parents are going, Children. Right? You and I, we are masters of importunity. Right? How many of you begged your parent into the candy bar or the trinket in the grocery store line? At least once in your life. Come on, right? How many of you, as they're getting ready to check out, and there's hundreds of dollars of groceries and 200 items in the cart, just by saying, over and over and over. Can I have it? Can I have it? Can I have it? Can I have it? No. Please, 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 please. No. Okay. There you go, right? That is importunity. That is exactly what is going on here. David is showing us it is okay to incessantly beg to the point of annoying God. And in fact, Jesus tells us, this is exactly how you should pray. More than once, Jesus tells us, this is how we should pray. The Lord's Prayer, what immediately follows? Ask, seek, knock. What is that? That's just an intensification of asking God for something in prayer. Even once, look up here on the screen in Luke 18, verses 1-8, through Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. That's one of the best lines in all the Bible. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect? Who cried to him day and night. Where was David crying? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Will he find faith in you to continue incessantly praying to him and not giving up when the storm of life hits? Will you hang in there or will you walk away when the storm of life hits? And it is there that this may be the most bipolar psalm In all the Bible. Because if you have your scriptures and you look in verse 21, you are going to be incredibly surprised and shocked. And when you read it, if you're not paying attention, you're just like, what in the world just happened? Because in 19, it was, But you, O Lord, don't be far off. Come, quickly help me. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. The first half of verse 21. Save me from the mouth of the lion. And the very next half of the verse is, you have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. Well, how did that happen? What took place? We are given no clue. But in the same way that Jesus said, would God not deal speedily with his elect? And remember, speedily is on God's clock, not ours. Just remember that. Remember Uh, I just, this is just great. Somebody, I I saw someone post a meme yesterday that says, um, when a woman says to a man, I'll be ready in five minutes, think like this. Five minutes to go in the fourth quarter and both teams have all their timeouts left in a tie football game. (laughs) All right? (laughs) So, so when we think, speedily in time. you got to remember there are two very different clocks that we work on and God works on. That was good. And yes, I did send that one to my wife yesterday. (laughs) But look look, look at what happens. I'm just going to read the rest of the psalm. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he is not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall be the praise of the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nation shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations I mean, is there anything more bipolar than this last half as compared to what we just saw? And we aren't told what happens. But we know that indeed, God has rescued David. And rather than focusing on what took place to bring about this rescue, I want us to focus on what David said should be the result of, For us, when God delivers us from trouble. Number one, there should be gratitude for deliverance. Number two, there should be praise for deliverance. And number three, there should be testimony of deliverance. And if you went back and you read through this, you would see those three things take place in those verses. That David expresses gratitude for being delivered. He praises God for being delivered. And now he says it will be a testimony to a people yet unborn that he has done it. It is a testimony of deliverance. So we've walked through Psalm 22. But anytime we, we are looking at the Psalms, Anytime we are looking at a passage of Scripture, we must also view that passage through the lens of what Christ has accomplished on the cross. So when when we look at Psalm 22, we now go, okay, Psalm 22 is here and David has written it. We have the cross of Christ here and we have to now look back through the portal of time and go, How do we make this work in our lives? We have to put on those gospel lenses, those, those lenses of the crucifixion, and now look at this passage to bring out all the fullness and all the meaning so that we can make application to our lives as we walk this out in the 21st century. And Paul does an amazing job of that for us in writing his letter to the Romans. He does an amazing job of, uh, of writing this out in his letter to the Ephesians. In, in Paul's letters, so much of what he is writing is now bringing a clear, full picture of everything that was done in the Old Testament now being fulfilled and revealed and applied to our lives, to the lives of his people 2,000 years ago, but can also be applied to ours. And so, church, I I want you to remember, as Paul has reminded us, that if you are a child of God, and you are going through incredibly difficult things, and as you walk through life, and maybe you lose a child, and maybe you lose a spouse, and maybe you get stricken with cancer or some other horrible disease, as you experience sufferings, and, and suffering and, and the storms of life, the first thing you must do is ground yourself in a greater reality than your current circumstance. You must expand your reality beyond, acknowledge your experience, acknowledge what you're going through, but expand your horizons to beyond what you are currently walking through. Because does not God say to us in Ephesians chapter 1, 3 through 14, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ. Remember, Paul's two favorite words in the New Testament over 160 times is telling you, you are in Christ. You are in Him. He is in you. That is the greatest reality that defines your life, not your circumstances if you are a follower of Jesus. That God has gone to incredible lengths to redeem you and to rescue you and to call you His own, to place you in Christ, for Christ to become one inside of you. But that still begs the question, why, why suffering? Right? Why does God not just allow suffering, But why does God sometimes intentionally bring suffering into our lives? And I know this is a topic that is very hard to accept. But yet we can see throughout the scriptures that there are times when God intentionally and strategically brings suffering into our lives. And He does it for one great, grand, glorious reason. And it will help you to know this reason for the rest of your life. In Romans chapter 8, look what Paul says in verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, the covenant people of God, all things work together for good. Which things? All things. The good things? The day to day things? the bad, horrific things. All things. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined for one primary purpose and reason, to be conformed to the image of His Son. You need to know that everything that God is doing in your life is one grand goal in mind. That is to conform you to the image of Jesus. And does Hebrews 5, verse 8 or 9, not tell us, that even Jesus had had to suffer in order to be made perfect. Think about that. The one who never sinned, the one who never did anything wrong, who fulfilled all righteousness, even he had to learn obedience through suffering as the one who is fully God and fully man. How much more do we, the often wayward children of God, need to learn through suffering? But see, it's, it's not without point, it's not without value. Its entire purpose is to refine us, to mold us, to shape us, to make us most like Jesus. The American dream is that everything in your life will get better, and we want to attach God to it. God says, my dream is to make you more like Jesus. So if you're going to follow me, if you're going to take Jesus' word seriously and pick up your cross and follow him, if you're going to deny yourself, you're going to lay your life down, then you will be formed into the image of Jesus. And there will be some incredibly wonderful and glorious days along that path. But there will be incredibly hard days that come along that I will use, that I will mold, and that I will use to shape you, to make you into the person who loves me and my Son above all else. Paul closes the 8th chapter of Romans with these words. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things who shall bring any charge against God's elect it is God who justifies who is to condemn Christ is the one who died more than that who was raised who is at the right hand of God who indeed is interceding for us So know that even in the midst of your suffering, Jesus intercedes on your behalf to the Father. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. As you walk through this life, when you find yourself in a place like David, don't for a moment be fooled that you're getting angry at God or expressing yourself emotionally to God can separate you from God in any way, shape, or form. For if you have not had the experience of being a parent, it is when your child cries out in pain, cries out for help, that you are apt to run to him, not away from them. What a crazy, strange world it would be if that every time children screamed out in agony, you saw parents running out of the house, down the road, away from their children, right? But we know that when we cry out, when children cry out, parents run to them. Do not be afraid to cry out to God. But also, you need this theological framework in your mind to know why God brings suffering into our lives. It has a greater, grander purpose than we can all realize. And that is why Paul can tell us, I do not consider these light and momentary afflictions to even consider being compared to the glory of God that will one day be revealed to us who are the children of God. See, that is the hope that we have. That no matter how much our suffering is in life, it will feel like nothing more than a pinprick in the other side of eternity compared to the glory that we experience when we are exposed to God's glory forever and ever throughout all of With that, I'll go ahead and invite the band back up and we will enter into our time of communion. And church, this is what I would like you to focus on in communion this morning is I I want you to focus on the deliverance given to us by Christ. Because if not for the gospel, if not for Jesus' willingness to step into our place and to and to be the sacrifice for our sins, to pay the penalty for our sin, to to go into the depths and to rise from the dead, we would have no hope. But because Christ has risen from the dead and has absorbed our wrath and has taken the penalty for sin, we can come and we can take communion. Like David sets an example for us with gratitude with praise and even going out in the world as a testimony of what God has delivered us from. For if you are a child of God, you have been delivered from your sin. You have been delivered into all righteousness. And one day you will be delivered into the hands of God to experience His glories forever. So with that in mind, come
2: and worship your King.